Well, I'm really glad that after uh, last week's introductory session on marriage, everybody came back. This is good. So <laughs> it's a tough conversation. And we talked about last week how just there's a great diversity of feeling in the room as we take up uh, the topic of marriage. And uh, I'll just be very honest, it's been a difficult series for me to write these messages. I do a lot of typing. Oh, no, I'll delete, 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 type, 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 type. It's hard. It's hard because this is such gritty and real stuff for so many of us. Because I live in the midst of a marriage, and many of you do, and so it just is a very uh, difficult thing to talk about sometimes. And this morning, last week was a heavier thing, so I thought this week we'd do sort of a flip more casual message, so we're going to be talking about conflict in marriage, which is no big deal. Hardly comes up for most of us, right? No. I I did just feel in my time of study this week, I just want to say this, that, you know, as we're talking about conflict in marriage and marriage generally, um, there's just sometimes a lot that goes unseen, and if, if your marriage has come to a place of struggle, would just really encourage you to do the brave thing and open up to to me or to somebody else to let somebody into the reality of that struggle. I think from time to time, all Christian couples just need, in, in a formal way or an informal way, to invite fellow believers into the reality of our mess. And I think we just need to be the sort of congregation where it's okay to be honest. Uh, this is tough stuff. And I don't mean to always frame marriage in that way, that it's just difficult struggle, because it's also the source of my greatest joy and just a place of great comfort. And it's all of those things. It's goofy and giggly and uh, horribly tragic, all of it, all at once. And depending on what kind of a season we're in, uh, sometimes we need to reach out and let other people into the reality of that stuff. So just wanted to say that at the beginning, I'm available if you guys want to talk. Uh, I'm not sure I could help. I would love to try, though, and uh, would, of course, hold all that stuff in confidence. So I think sometimes we just kind of carry things tightly in a way that's sort of, you know, hidden. We don't want to talk about it. And so please, uh, as we're processing these things together, um, just consider that. One other thing. As we're going to talk about conflict in marriage today, I don't want you to walk out of here and say one of two things. You get in your car with your spouse, or you get home to your spouse or whatever, don't turn to your spouse and say, I've been telling you that for years. <laughs> really, <laughs> Resist the temptation, okay? Just don't do it. The other thing not to say is you get away from the message. Don't throw your hands up in despair and go, oh, man, that's us. We're hopeless. <laughs> don't do either of those two things. If I know anything about the God of the Bible, is that that's not hopeless. That's the beginning of the greatest hope when we kind of come to this place where we just kind of go, okay, I see it now. That's a wonderful place to arrive at. It's the very opposite of hopelessness. So don't despair. If you just feel, come away from this feeling like, man, I've just have been doing it wrong, that's the beginning of a wonderful journey (laughs) of moving in a better direction and things like that. So here we go. Let's dive in. We've been reading, we've been coming to the classical text on marriage last week, this week, the next two Sundays, and that is Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. These are the very words of our God in Scripture. He says this, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, 
as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Down through the years, a lot of people have been married in this very room. Some of you were married in this room. And there's something I really want you to visualize the next time you witness a couple draw before this place to be united in marriage. I actually thought about demonstrating this uh, in reality. I, I was going to call up two children from downstairs, and I was going to have them stand at the back of the sanctuary. And I was going to say, okay, run to me. And you can imagine a boy and a girl, right? Just come pounding down the aisle. And two kids are incapable of running like this without making it into a race. I would have told them it's not a race, but they would race anyway, right? They would run, and they would fly down here, and they'd be giggling and smiling, and they'd get to the here. And then I would say to them, good job. You guys are good runners. You're super fast. And then I would turn them around, and I would say, okay, now we're going to have you run back out as a three-legged race. And I would tie their legs together, their inside legs. And I would say, okay, now go for it. And they would try to run out. And what would happen? <laughs> what always happens in three-legged races. Tumble, bumble, they'd fall, they'd struggle. It would look weird. And I didn't do it because we have pews lining them. <laughs> and I thought, this would be the worst sermon illustration ever if it ended with an ambulance and angry parents. So we're not going to do that. I'll just describe it. But I want you to visualize that the next time two people arrive at this place, then the scripture says, Jesus says, that God joins them together into a one flesh union. You shall leave your father and mother and become one flesh. You become one unit, one new person. They arrived as two separate entities, and they leave to forever into life, move through life in a three-legged fashion. And sometimes it looks awkward. It is awkward. It's sometimes very frustrating People move at different speeds in different directions. They have different ideas about how to go about it. Well, my mom and dad did it this way. Well, when my mom and dad tried to do it that way, they fell down, and I don't want to do that. One partner gets tired and just kind of lays there, and the other is screaming, come on, get up. They're sometimes giggling and smiling. It's goofy at times being married, and it's fun. But there's also going to be a lot of knocking into each other falling down, stumbling, skinned knees, tears. 
Covenant, of course, and we talked about this last week, is the glue that binds marriages together. When it says in the Bible, my version is the ESV that I tend to use, says, hold fast to your wife. In most of your translations, it might read cleave. And that word in the Greek means to glue together. And that is describing the nature of Christian marriage, that it is an exclusive, permanent, binding, legal joining together. That's what marriage is. And the reason why we have covenants in marriage, why we make vows, is that it binds our marriages together not only when things are good, but especially and inevitably when they are bad. There's a reason why we express vows, not hopes and wishes at our wedding ceremonies. Christian attitudes toward marriage are best understood not as wish fulfillment, but historically, vows at a Christian wedding ceremony are an expression of a gritty determination to stay, to stay true to our covenant marriage vows even if our wishes do not pan out. Traditionally, in Christian wedding ceremonies, we find kind of grim language, like for better or for worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, and of course, the most grim of all, till death do us part. (laughs) Those traditional vows exist because of the powerful forces that work to separate married people from the very moment they are joined together. And some of those forces are alluded to by inference in the verses that we just read in Ephesians 5. The very existence of a command, and and we know this uh, intuitively, right? Like, why when you're driving down State Road is there a, a posted speed limit? Because there are people who exceed that speed limit. They go too fast down State Road. We all know this to be true. The existence of the the command implies that there are many who break the command and so this these verses in ephesians 5 are chock full of commands to love to submit to show respect to honor to give yourself up for her to leave mom and dad to cleave or hold fast to your spouse All these things imply by their very existence that some people, many people, maybe even all people, will be inclined in their fallen hearts not to do these things. So although conflict is nowhere mentioned directly in these verses, the reality and potential for conflict is nevertheless central to all of it. But here's the good news. In addition to showing us the potential for conflict, the great looming potential for it that is inherent in marriage, these verses also show us a great principle for helping us manage the conflict in our marriages. Different couples tend to fight about different things. Uh, Money, sex, child rearing, work-free time balance, extended family stuff, household responsibilities, if you're married, you recognize that list, <laughs> and you're like, yep, 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 yep. But I think it's fair to say that all of these flashpoints where conflict tends to arise in marriages are just the presenting issue of a deeper problem. 
The biggest problem in every marriage is selfishness. I I thought about, that is a great sweeping statement. I'm always hesitant when there's something complicated to say something so simple as that. But as I turned that around in my mind all week, I just kept coming back to the truth of it. The biggest problem in my marriage is selfishness. Guys, I worked in Christian camping for years at Camp Maranatha, and I have witnessed so many three-legged races. You don't even know. <laughs> I'm an expert on three-legged races. I've watched so many kids in Southern California do three-legged races. And here's something that's nearly universal when you talk to kids who have just run in a three-legged race, especially if it didn't go well. It usually goes something like this. Imagine two little kids. We'll call them Bobby and Susie. No offense, Sue Forbes. <laughs> little Bobby what happened out there you guys look like you were really struggling and what is Bobby going to say he's going to say well every time we got going Susie would jerk her leg like this and then we'd fall down little Susie's over here shaking her head I go Susie what do you think happened well Bobby was going too fast I told him to slow down but he wouldn't Okay, I tell you, that is how, like, not not word for word, but essentially that's how every autopsy of a three-legged race is broken down. I was trying to do the right thing, but she was messing up. I was trying to do the right thing, but you were messing up. This is how it always goes. Their their analysis of what went wrong in their three-legged race sounds just like most couples when they try to describe what's going wrong in their marriages. They blame each other. And I think this is generally what goes on in marriages that are in trouble. Things will begin to improve in a marriage when even just one spouse begins to think that their own selfishness is the biggest problem in their marriage. But the best marriages are the ones where both spouses to begin to believe and operate from the place that the biggest problem in their marriage is the fact that they're selfish, fallen sinners. I remember years ago when Sarah and I were first married, we had a basement apartment at 19A Lower Weldon Street. It was about a block from where I worked as a police officer. I would work overnight. I was working nights back then. And the boots that had been issued to me at that police department were, they looked good in a uniform, but they were horribly impractical in the reality of a Vermont winter. You know, my toes by the end of that night would just be like blocks of ice. And I can remember getting off work at 5.30, and I'd step out of the police department, and because it was only a block to our apartment, I would walk. And just walking home in that cold, uh, it felt like I was wearing paper, you know what I mean? And I was tired. And I, you know, we hear about wind chill factor when it comes to cold. I really believe scientists need to come up with a sleepiness factor. Like, I think that when it's cold and you're sleepy, it's at least 20 degrees colder than it is. But I'm walking home, I'm tired, my toes are aching in the cold, and I'd get home and I'd go down into our basement apartment and it was warm, and I would get into bed. But I was very conscious as I slid into bed next to my wife that my body was like a block of ice and hers was warm under the blankets. And so I would... uh, Try not to touch her, because <laughs> it, it would be cruel. 
And I can remember in those early days of our marriage, and I would get in there, and I'm just laying in bed trying to get warm. Sarah's feet would slide across, find my feet, and she would rub her feet and my feet together. Now that has been a picture in my mind of my marriage. Her taking my coldness and leaving me her warmth. It's a very selfless thing to do. Uh, Being married more than anything else in my life has made me have to confront, the Holy Spirit has confronted me through marriage with the depths of my own selfishness. And that's been one of the great sanctifying works of marriage in my life. God has used my marriage to show me that I am a very self-centered man. Everyone first gets married because they think the other person is great. Basically, that's what happens always. But then something inevitably happens, and they realize that they're not. They're not great. (laughs) Now, I feel very confident in saying that because the Bible does. Romans 3.10 states it plainly. I quoted this last week. No one is righteous, no, not one. And definitely not you, definitely not me. Guys, I have a very controversial thing to say from the pulpit, but I want you to hear it and believe it. You married a bad person. And maybe even a harder statement, if you're married, your spouse married a bad person. Now, this is very important to know and to believe. Now, I I get it. In Christ, we're all clothed in the perfect righteousness of Christ. When God looks at you, I'm not saying think of yourself with shame (laughs) because God doesn't look on you that way. God looks at you, and he sees the perfect righteousness of Christ. But I do want us to be realistic about the fact that we are all struggling to put off the old man. Even as we sincerely follow Jesus, we are by degrees doing that. And it's never, our victory will not be complete until the day of Christ when he comes back. Until that day, I will continue to be, in reality, factually, a bad man. I don't just do bad things, I'm bad. I know I'm redeemed, I know my identity in Christ is that I'm righteous, I'm good, I'm forgiven, God has declared me not guilty. But in marriage, I come face-to-face with my own sinfulness constantly, constantly. We see this in marriages all the time. I, I once knew a couple, we were talking about this in our counseling class on Wednesday morning not that long ago, and, and he grew up in a home where his mom had told him, you know, your dad works so hard, and when he comes home, one of the ways that I say to your dad I love him is I don't bother him with the diapers and stuff. (laughs) And he heard that and internalized it and saw that example lived out in his home. And his wife came from a home where her dad said to her, honey, one of the ways I show your mom that I love her is by helping with the diapers and stuff. (laughs) So then these two get married. And these two bad people create another bad person who poops his pants constantly. (laughs) And the first time they're standing there with a poopy diaper, you see the crisis that unfolds in that moment. Right? 
who's going to change this diaper becomes a statement about who loves the other person. When she says to him, honey, would you change this diaper? I'm super tired. He hears in that request, you don't respect my contributions to this home. My mom changed the diapers because that's how she told dad, you work so hard for the family and I love what you do. She hears in his refusal to change that baby's diaper, you don't love me. One of the ways my dad said, I love you to my mom, was to change the diapers. Do you see what they're both doing? (laughs) Wow. And this sort of dynamic plays out in a thousand different ways in marriages. We all have expectations. We all bring into the marriage our own perspective, our own way of being formed, and it is a very awkward three-legged race. So much conflict, so much bumping into each other, so much differing expectations. But here's something really important to keep in mind. This is so key. This past fall, I read Tim Keller's book, The Meaning of Marriage, in preparation for these mornings together. Tim Keller points out in his book, he says, and I love it, he says, marriage feels like you have been brought into conflict with your spouse, when really it is closer to the truth that marriage has brought you into conflict with yourself. I think that is so true. And when we look at these verses in Ephesians 5, we see that at every point, Paul is countering our natural fallen tendencies towards self-centeredness by calling us to embrace a more excellent way in our marriages that is not self-serving, but other-serving. For example, I think selfishness is what makes the word head of the wife such a scary thing to say in our culture, right? Because we all know how the great capacity human beings have for selfishness. And we hear head of the home and we think tyrant. We think boss. We think authority. And we hear words like submit. And because we know the great capacity that human beings have for selfishness, we hear the only way to do that is unthinking servile obedience. That must be what's meant by that. You can't find in God's word any endorsement for unthinking servile obedience or tyranny in the home. This is patently not what these things mean. But because we are so steeped in selfishness and we fear the selfishness of others, we, we worry about these kinds of words and we misconstrue them. Uh, incidentally, in a couple of weeks, uh, we're, I'm going to speak more directly to these issues about genders and submit and headship. And what does all this mean? It'll be like the preaching equivalent of diffusing a live bomb. And I just can't wait. (laughs) But for now, I think the advice of Ephesians 5 can be boiled down to this. Husbands and wives, you are to seek your joy in the joy of your spouse. This is what it boils down to. When it says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, what is that calling you to, men? It is calling you to a radical life of seeking your joy 
in the joy of your spouse. And when it says, wives, respect your husband, honor him in his God-given role, what is that calling you to? But a radically challenging life of seeking your joy in the joy of your husband. Very difficult thing to live out in reality. And we've been called to difficult things. And I always just lean on what uh, St. Augustine said. He said, God, command what you will, but give what you command. (laughs) God, I see and I understand. I apprehend the, the command here, but I struggle to imagine how I could possibly live it out in its fullness. God, you must give to me what you have commanded. I want to obey, but I am so far from this place. Today is Super Bowl Sunday. And uh, a couple weeks ago in the midweek email, I mentioned a commercial I had watched 10 years ago, Super Bowl 44. It was also in Miami. The Colts were playing the Saints. I couldn't even remember who had won. I had to look it up to see who'd won. Colts won. Uh, I know that in the years since, we temporarily changed the name of the Super Bowl to the Patriots Invitational, something like that. (laughs) I think this year they went back to Super Bowl, which I like. Uh, but I remember we had gone over to the, uh, the house of some friends of ours for a Super Bowl party back then. And uh, at one of the commercial breaks, it's the only time of the year where people enjoy the commercials, right? Everybody's super into the commercials. The, basically, the only thing I remember from that game is a commercial for the Dodge Charger. It was called Man's Last Stand. And we're going to go ahead and play it right now. Up and walk the dog at 6.30 a.m. I will eat some fruit as part of my breakfast. I will shave. I will clean the sink after I shave. I will be at work by 8 a.m. I will sit through two-hour meetings. I will say yes when you want me to say yes. I will be quiet when you don't want to hear me say no. I will take your call. I will listen to your opinion of my friends. I will listen to your friends' opinions of my friends. I will be civil to your mother. I will put the seat down. I will separate the recycling. I will carry your lip balm. I will watch your vampire TV shows with you. I will take my socks off before getting into bed. I will put my underwear in the basket. And because I do this, I will drive the car. I want to drive. Charger, man's last stand. (laughs) Okay. Okay. It's 10 years ago. Josh Tate was watching that, and I, I was picking up what they were laying down. Right? <laughs> I, I have to confess, you know, I was watching that commercial, and I was like, yep, right. The central premise of that commercial seemed, seems to be, isn't this true, that men have surrendered just too much of their personal autonomy, And husbands are suffering silently like so many martyrs within the onerous confines of their marriages. The wild man that lives in your breast is chafing under the well-intentioned but irritating attempts of women to domesticate you, suffocate your spirit with petty indignities like cleaning up after yourself and listening to her opinions. Guys, it's time to push back and buy a charger, right? <laughs> this, is, this, is, 
this is that commercial. It is on screen at the largest televised events in our culture, making the point for me that the biggest problem in marriage is selfishness. They are saying the problem is Susie Forbes. <laughs> right, Peter? <laughs> right? They're saying she's the problem. I'll carry your lip balm. I'll watch your vampire shows. The ad reminded me of a quote I had read by the 19th century English publisher and author Edward Verrill Lucas. He said this, The trouble with marriage is that while every woman is at heart a mother, every man is at heart a bachelor. Some truth to that. Again, selfishness. It's the problem. Dodge didn't pony up a fortune in ad time without doing their research first. You can be sure that their pitch was carefully crafted, audience tested and designed to hold maximum appeal to their target market, married men who were bachelors at heart. And I have to confess that that ad resonated a little bit with me at the time, more than just a little bit. We were at a stage in life where for about 10 years straight, we were just changing diapers all the time. We were still newly married kind of-ish, still struggling to hit our stride, still a lot of bumping and knocking into each other. And when I watched that commercial, I was like, man, that is so me. <laughs> I get it. But to the, to the point that that was true, shame on me. To the point that I'm a bachelor at heart, shame on me because I am, in fact, a husband. And I, you know, I should have just said, you know, I'm more of an Astrovan kind of guy. <laughs> because that, that's better suited to serving my wife and our family at this time. I need to be a servant leader. But I, at that time, I was like, yeah, I should get a car where you can't put more than, like, one other person in it. <laughs> and... and <laughs> And maybe that person could be Sarah, I guess, sometimes. <laughs> oh, man. If I was a bachelor at heart, then shame on me. Because, in fact, I'm a husband. And husbands are called in Christ to seek their joy in the joy of their spouse. That commercial is wrong. It's sad, really. It's kind of tragic. Today, Christian husbands and wives are being called to relate to one another in ways that look markedly different than the surrounding culture. Christianity has always been a wonderfully countercultural kind of thing. Last Sunday, and I, I won't mention her name because she, I didn't ask if I could, a friend of mine came up to me as we were getting coffee out here, and she muttered under breath, I don't like that word, submit. <laughs> It's a controversial word, is it not? But nevertheless, there it is in our Bibles. And again, in a couple weeks, I'll be addressing some of what that means, and maybe more importantly, what it doesn't mean. But let me just say this. When this letter was first written during the days of the Roman Empire, it would have been every bit as controversial as it is today. However, in that day and in that culture, the controversy would not have rested on Paul's words to women to submit to their husbands, 
but rather on the command for men to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. In fact, if you go back and you break down those verses, and percentage-wise, the percentage of it that's addressed to men as opposed to women is much, much larger. The problem in that culture in that day was on the other side of the coin, perhaps. Paul's commands focus on the command for men to love their wives as Christ loved the church, and those words were deeply countercultural in the Roman world. Women in that day and in that culture existed for men, period. They were slaves in their own homes. It's very difficult for us to imagine today, living as we do in this culture and in this age, but in that day, women, even wives, had no legal standing before the courts. Often they couldn't own property. They didn't even own their own bodies. They were exploited, used, abused, treated, as if their only value was derived from their benefit to others. But Paul turned those broadly held cultural attitudes on their head by telling Christian husbands in the first century Roman world that the way Christian men and women relate to one another in marriage must look different than in the surrounding culture. And that's not the only countercultural thing he says in those verses. In the cultures of the Orient, the ancient Orient, the Roman world, the relationship of a child to their parents was more important than the relationship of a man to his wife. That was a deeper bond in those cultures. Even to this day, the idea of leaving mom and dad and holding fast to your wife, preferring her over your parents, would be a deeply offensive notion to most of those cultures in the ancient Orient, including, including cultures that have been shaped by the Bible. But he says here in these verses, husbands, leave your mom and dad and hold fast to your wife. She's your thing now, not them. All of these things were wildly countercultural in that day and in that time. Some people look at these words in Ephesians 5 and they make the argument that they are a reflection of an archaic backwards culture, a bygone era. But that's not true. These words in Ephesians 5 are not a reflection of the culture at that time, but rather confrontation with it. They're deeply countercultural, even offensive, and this is important for us to see today because just as then God is calling Christian husbands and wives to relate to one another in a countercultural way, we should live together differently than in the surrounding culture. Christian marriages should be markedly different. They should look different. They should operate different. They should operate on the principle of each seeking their joy in the joy of the other. Instead, our culture looks like this. Grab what you can. Christianity has always been countercultural. It seems to me as we read the Bible and we read church history that wherever it has been preached or lived authentically, it has disturbed the spirits of the neighborhood. To liberals, authentic Christianity is too conservative. To conservatives, it's too liberal. And that's just kind of the way it is. It's deeply countercultural wherever you find it. And so just know this, as we're going to talk about marriage going forward, we are calling you to something that's weird. (laughs) 
that's wonderfully different than what we see modeled in the culture at large. I want to close with this thought, and that's this. Conflict is not all bad. I think sometimes uh, we, we think that if we're doing marriage right, we will not experience conflict. But it seems to me that hoping to have a conflict marriage is a bit like jumping into a lake and hoping not to get wet or something. It's just not going to happen. A couple weeks ago in our counseling class on Wednesday mornings, which I'm very grateful for, I've been really enjoying it, getting a lot out of it, and uh, just look forward to that time of discussion every week. Uh, The speaker that week was talking about conflict in marriage to some extent, and he cited some stats that were interesting to me. He quoted John Gottman, who cites in his book, Manage Conflict, this stat. He said, 69% of conflict in marriage is perpetual and does not get resolved. 69% of conflict in marriage just goes on and on and on without ever being resolved. Now, after reading that, we might conclude that this explains why divorce rates are so high. But in the same book, Gottman offers up another stat. It's fascinating. He said that 60% of divorces are from low-conflict couples. Huh. That's interesting. And I think that there is a truth here that we need to see and understand as Christians. In the healthiest marriages, husbands and wives can't hold the expectation there will be no conflict here. Rather, the message has to be that when conflicts do arise, as they inevitably will, we won't run from them. We won't neglect to address them head on. We can't afford not to. Because a good marriage is not marked by an absence of conflict but somehow by the ability to disagree without being disagreeable. I I, I think this is very important to see, to understand, to believe that if you're in the midst of a marriage where there is unresolved conflict, don't despair, you're not alone. And there might even be a good side to that hard thing. In fact, I want to make something of a controversial statement, and that is this. To some extent, conflict is the best thing for us. Consider this for a moment. I say to some extent. Please, I'm speaking in measured language. Appreciate the careful use of language here because conflict is not always good either. I'm just saying open your mind to the possibility that some degree of conflict in marriage is God-given. It's needed because we're bad people. There's things that need to be confronted. There's things in me that are selfish. It's a bit like uh, if you've ever gone to the ocean and you find those rocks that have been rounded and are smooth. At one time, those rocks were jagged. And what happened? They got tumbled in the surf. Thousands of little conflicts wore off their rough edges to leave them rounded and smooth. And to some extent, when you are thrown into a marriage, you're just thrown into this hopper (laughs) where you're just bouncing around against each other all the time. And those we're coming up against seeing the rough edges of sinfulness in your life. And marriage is this great sanctifying tool that confronts you with that through conflict. 
Proverbs 27, 17 says this, Iron sharpens iron as one man sharpens another. That is talking about that same idea. Conflict helping you become better. Marriage is friendship. Uh, It's many things besides that, but it is friendship. And this verse in Proverbs 27, 17 is saying that one of the great benefits of friendship is true, authentic, biblical friendship, the kind we saw between Jonathan and David, is it sharpens, sometimes through confrontation. And again, just as Keller said, marriage feels like you've been brought into conflict with your spouse when really it's closer to the truth that marriage has brought you into conflict with yourself. Listen, you cannot become more like Jesus without going through trials any more than you can become strong without working out or skinny without diet and exercise. And one of the great purposes of God in your life in giving you a spouse was not to make you happy, but to make you holy. God's great aim in your life is not to make you comfortable, but to make you more like Jesus. And so his aim in all things is that. And so one of the great benefits of marriage is that it is used by degrees over time to confront you. And we see this throughout Scripture. Romans 5.3 says this, We rejoice in our sufferings. Have you ever said that in the midst of a, a spat with your spouse? Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Or James 1, count it all joy, my brothers, when you get in a fight with your spouse, just kidding, when you meet trials of various kinds. You know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You've got some rough edges that need to be knocked off. So I gave you a spouse. (laughs) Conflict is not all bad. There's a lot of bad in conflict. But there is a useful side. There is a purpose in the struggle of marriage. It's one thing to say disagree without being disagreeable. I get that, but it's another to do it. And this Saturday, we're going to get together here in the fellowship hall. As many as you would love to come out and be part of the conversation. We're going to play some games we're going to have some light refreshments, and we're going to have some very important conversations together about how to do that. Uh, maybe we've seen and grasped the truth, but we're just not quite sure how to put that into practice in a practical way, and I'm going to do my level best to try and help with that. Uh, but just know this, I'm a fellow struggler too. I, I got a lot out of last night, and uh, it's just good for me to sit down, good for us to sit down and talk about these things with other couples, other Christian believers. So I encourage you to come out. We'll continue the conversation then. Uh, but right now, let me just pray, and the worship team is going to come up and lead us in one more song before we take communion. Dear Heavenly Father, we're about to sit down here at the table of communion. And Father, this bread, this cup is great proof of the conflict that existed between fallen man and a righteous God. And God, we know that you would have been in within your rights to say, away with you. 
I will pour out my wrath on all humanity. You would have been within your rights to do that. None of us could say you'd be in the wrong. But God, amazingly, Jesus sought his joy in the joy of his bride, the church. Though there was no fault in him, though he was not the party who had offended, he laid down his life. For us, even when we were far off and opposed to him, when we were bitter and angry, when we were rebellious, for God demonstrates his own love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And Father, when it says that this mystery is profound, that marriage is pointing us to the truth, the picture of how Christ and his church love one another within that bond, that it's meant to graphically illustrate that. Father, here on this table before us is the great symbol of what that means and looks like and what we're being called to in our own homes. Father, it is a high calling. It is difficult. Frankly, God, it is beyond our abilities. We're aware of what you have commanded, and God, we cry out to you to give us what you have commanded. Give us the capacity for obedience. Give us the capacity to love our spouse in that way and to seek our joy in the joy of our spouse. Father, I pray for the marriages here at State Road that you would help us to embrace a more excellent way than what's being played out in the surrounding culture and to put you on display in our homes. Father, do a work of healing. God, thank you for speaking to us this morning in your word. In Jesus' name, amen.